the liberation of the continent will not come from outside. Africans will have to rid themselves from legacies of racism, colonialism, and imperialism. However, this will only be possible if African peoples regain trust in themselves, unite their forces, and accept to promote their material and cultural resources. When we had the Ebola crisis in West Africa, Cuba sent doctors to help. The U.S. sent military troops. <laughs> you see the difference in the approach. Well, that's the difference between socialism and capitalism. <laughs> exactly. I refer often to Martin Luther King in the context of the civil rights movement. He said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and incrementalism. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. Hey folks, this is Steve with Macron Cheese. About seven weeks ago, I did an interview with Ndongo Sambasilla, a Senegalese economist who's part of the international MMT community. It was a seriously great episode. Shortly afterwards, Real Progressives did a webinar with Ndongo as part of our RP Live series of webinars. It was fantastic. So this week, we're bringing the audio track to you as a podcast episode. I hope you learn as much from it as we did. This is RP Live presents Africa's quest for economic liberation with Ndango Sambasella. Welcome everyone. This is RP Live with Real Progressives. Tommy John's going to introduce our guest in a moment. I just want to remind you to visit the Real Progressives website, realprogressives.org for great articles and information. We have RP Bookshop. In fact, Ndongo's books are sold through the RP Bookshop if you want to order them. Some of us have been reading his most recent one. We have a great podcast. We've done how many weeks so far, Kami John? Do you remember? In 241. Yeah. Straight weeks of a great, great podcast, Macro and Cheese. We talk about macroeconomics, politics. We talk about the American police. We talk about imperialism, capitalism, eco-socialism. And then we also need you to donate. These kinds of events cost money. We pay for this webinar platform. We pay for our virtual office space, Microsoft Teams. We pay for whatever the graphic artists use and the video producers use, the podcast platforms. So we really need your help. You can go to patreon.com slash realprogressives or to realprogressives.org. There's a donate link there. So I'm going to turn it over to my lovely co-host, Tommy John, to introduce tonight's guest. Well, thank you, Mom Red. You also look lovely as usual. And 
again, what she said, this podcast, the macaron cheese, it's just a great nuanced look at certain things that you're not going to find anywhere else. They really deep dive into a lot of stuff. And I'm telling you, Nadango's recent one was really great on imperialism and the effects on the global South. I'm a big fan of our guest today, and he's been on macaron cheese twice, including a joint interview with Fadel Kaboob, friend of the show. Nadango Sambasilla is a Senegalese development economist. He's previously worked as a technical advisor at the presidency of the Republic of Senegal and was program manager at the West Africa office of the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. He's recently been appointed the Africa Director for Research and Policy at IDEAS, or IDEAS, International Development Economics Associates. He's the co-author of Africa's Last Colonial Currency, the CFA Frank Story, and the author of The Fair Trade Scandal. Both books can be ordered right through our RP bookshop on the website, realprogressives.org. And I'm going to hand it over to our guest, Nadango Sambasilla. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Komi, John, I'm very glad to be here among all of you and to have the opportunity to exchange on the topic of today. So thanks to all of you for the invitation. It's always great to be with you, to have the opportunity to exchange with Andy, Virginia, Komi, and also Steve. So my presentation today is about overcoming the debt system imperialism and Africa's test for economic liberation. I choose to organize my talk today around the figure of Thomas Sankara, an anti-imperialist figure in Africa, and his agenda of economic liberation. I think that Thomas Sankara articulated important views about African development and more generally about economic liberation that we could build on in our current efforts to create sustainable prosperity for 1.4 billion Africans in a context marked by climate change and growing environmental stress. Sankara's economic liberation project allows us to connect issues such as monetary sovereignty, ecological sustainability, human dignity, self-esteem, and international solidarity. It allows us also to evoke imperialism as a driving and ongoing force against the sustainable prosperity of mankind and against the principles of human freedom, equality, and solidarity. Born in 1949, Captain Thomas Sankara came to power in 1983 following a military coup organized by his companions in arms. He renamed the Upper Volta, the name given to his country by the colonizer, to Burkina Faso, which means land of men of integrity. During his four years in power, he tried to transform a poor and landlocked country under the yoke of French imperialist rule. The image he left to the younger generations is that of a sober and honest Pan-Africanist political leader. Despite his status as a head of state, he kept his captain's salary, which was lower than that of his wife. To resume their duty, members of his government were obliged to publicly declare their assets from 1986, that is 27 years before the same measure was implemented in France, a former colonizer. In retrospect, Sankara can be considered as a pioneering ultra-globalist activist. He was concerned with ecological sustainability and was a sincere advocate of women's rights. 
He also advocated the abolition of the debt of the third world countries, namely in his most famous speech delivered on 29th July 1987 at the Organization of African Unity. On that day, with eloquence, humor, and passion, he pleaded the urgency for African peoples to unite to face their common challenges. In particular, he called on his African peers to collectively repudiate the continent's external debt. He argued that this debt is an illegitimate one owing to its colonial origins and to that extent should not be paid. One additional reason for its repudiation is that Europe owed Africa a black debt which has not given rise to reparations. However, as Sankara tragically warned, quote, if Burkina Faso stands alone in refusing to pay, I will not be here for the next conference. End of quote. A few months later, on October 15, 1987, he was assassinated by a commando under the orders of his comrade in arms, Blaise Compaoré, who would succeed him in power. Compaoré, with the support of France, ruled Burkina Faso with an iron fist until his overthrow by a popular movement in 2014. Compaoré was exfiltrated by an extremist in France to Côte d'Ivoire. After 35 years of a long-awaited trial, the Burkinaabe justice system was able to shed light on the circumstances of Sankara's death. It sentenced the absentee Blaise Compaoré and his accomplices to life in prison. This judgment has been a hard-fought victory for Sankara's family and the activists who campaigned for more than three decades for the organization of the trial. My presentation today elaborates on his historic 1987 speech at the Organization of African Unity. In my opinion, it is probably the most important speech ever delivered by an African leader, next to the one by Patrice Lumumba at the ceremony of the proclamation of Congo's independence on June 30, 1960. The Zambian president, Kenneth Kaunda, was the chair of this Organization of African Unity Summit. He was truly impressed by Sankara's performance, charisma, boldness, and generous Pan-African vision. He told him on that day, quote, I want you as the president of my country, end of quote. This was not a cheap compliment from a head of state 20 years older than him. This was reflected genuinely a deep sense of admiration, trust, and hope. Indeed, that day before his African peace, Sankara huge African peoples to trust their inventiveness. He promoted the slogan, produce in Africa, transform in Africa, consume in Africa, as a way to spur local production, enlarge domestic demand for domestic products, and reduce unnecessary imports. He proposed to drastically reduce prestige and sumptuous spending. He opposed military spending aiming at arming Africans against each other and encourage his peers to discuss Africa's problem within the framework of the Organization of African Unity in place of the platforms established by the former colonial metropoles. He had in mind, for example, the French Africa summits. Sankara ended his speech with very significant and far-reaching words, quote, I would simply say that we must accept to live as African. That is the only way to live free and dignified, end of quote. In my opinion, the motto Live as African, beyond summarizing Sankara's political and ethical vision, draws an agenda for economic liberation. 
I would go even further. No development strategy worthy of the name for African continent can do without the Leavers African program that Sankara called for. To defend this thesis, I will put Sankara in conversation with the late Brazilian economist Celso Furtado and the late Franco-Egyptian economist Sami Damin. These two Global South thinkers provided the theoretical underpinnings for a Sankara-style economic liberation agenda. In particular, they challenged the still-dominant view that countries of the South could replicate the Western development trajectory. Furtado and Amin concluded that people in the South will never be able to catch up with the average standard of living in the North. Since then, numerous empirical studies dealing with the phenomenon of unequal ecological exchange have confirmed their prognosis and thus insisted, as Sankara did in his time, on the need for the countries of the South to find an alternative to the unsustainable Western development path. Based on these considerations, I will briefly elaborate in the conclusion on what policy content could be given nowadays to the program Live as African. The motto Live as African, as articulated by Thomas Sankara, is not racist or xenophobic, nor is it a plea for autarky or isolationism. Sankara was truly an internationalist. In the same speech at the Organization of African Unity, he declared, the popular masses of Europe are not opposed to the popular masses in Africa. Those who want to exploit Africa are those who want to exploit Europe too. We have a common enemy. Sankara had a conception of Africanness that reminds us of the constitution of the first Haitian Republic. When IEC gained its independence in 1804, Haitian citizenship was not defined in a racialized way. Rather, was considered as Haitian, any young who fought to liberate Haiti from the shackles of colonial domination. Even the much-celebrated 1789 French Revolution did not go as far as Haiti, as the late Michel Rolf Puyo demonstrated in his wonderful book entitled Silencing the Past. Live as African is an agenda for liberation. Argentine philosopher Enrique Dussel, who wrote extensively on the philosophy and ethics of liberation, introduced the concept of critical or negative ethics. According to him, the first principle of critical ethics suggests that we must oppose, quote, every ethical system that entails the production of certain victims, end of quote. This stance requires ethical systems to be assessed from the location of their specific victims. An agenda of economic liberation must by definition be articulated from the perspective of the victims of the current global economic system. It aims to resist against the existing global economic order and possibly transcend it in favor of an alternative way of organizing economic and political life that would empower the considerable number of victims that must be produced as long as the status quo prevails. The Live as African motto starts from the acknowledgement that African popular masses have been and are dominated and that they must end this situation themselves. The liberation of the continent will not come from outside. Africans will have liberated themselves from legacies of racism, colonialism, and imperialism. 
However, this will only be possible if Afghan peoples regain trust in themselves, unite their forces, and accept to promote their material and cultural resources. Live as African is therefore the expression of the ideal of self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency being understood both as freedom from external domination and as capacity to self-determination. It points to the urgent need to delink from an oppressive and exploitative world economic system as a first step towards self-determination and the building of more prosperous and equalitarian societies. Live as African was not a catchphrase for Sankara. During his four years as the head of Burkina Faso State, he did his best in very adverse circumstances to implement a policy of economic self-sufficiency based on the mobilization of domestic resources, the fight against corruption, and economic and financial waste. Also, a number of policy errors were made. Significant socioeconomic achievements have been recorded. I would like to argue that the path delineated by Sankara is the only one that is sustainable for both African peoples and the planet. To make this argument, I will rely on two Global South thinkers who showed why the Western development path cannot be successfully emulated in the Global South and why therefore peripheral countries must by necessity find their own way to create a sustainable prosperity for their inhabitants. Those two thinkers are Celso Furtado and Samir Amin. I will say that Furtado and Amin provided intellectual justifications for the living as African type of approach, while Sankara provided their scholarly views with a policy agenda, the limits of which we can learn of. Celso Furtado is one of the most prominent intellectuals of his generation. Influenced by great thinkers such as Marx, Keynes, Schumpeter, Raoul Prebisch, he was a pioneer of development economics and a leading figure of structuralism in Latin America. He wrote more than 30 books published in some 15 languages. He worked at the Economic Commission for Latin America between 1949 and 1957. He was the first Brazilian Prime Minister of Planning between 1962 and 1963. Between 1986 and 1988, he was the Minister of Culture. Before his death in 2004, he was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2003. As a scholar, Celso Furtado provided the kind of theoretical arguments that back and strengthen the agenda of economic liberation advocated by the practical man of action, Sankara Rose. In 1974, Furtado published in Portuguese a small and relatively ignored book called The Myth of Economic Development. The English edition was published only in 2020 at the occasion of the 100th anniversary of his birth. The Myth of Economic Development is a Prussian book that discusses from a global south perspective limits to growth, a bestseller in the environmentalist literature and a source of inspiration for the current degrowth movement. A landmark report of the Club of Rome, Limits to Growth has been translated into 30 languages since its publication. It analyzed and projected the interrelationships and behavior between the 20th century and 21st century of five main factors, population, industrial production, agricultural production, natural resources, and pollution.
the main results of limits growth are the following. First, economic growth is not the solution to the most pressing issues humanity is facing. It's rather the big problem, quote, that which all the world sees as a solution to its problem is in fact a cause of those problems, end of quote. Second, the idea of endless economic growth in a free world is absurd. Sooner or later, limits will be reached. On the one hand, regarding sources, not all resources that allow for exponential growth of capital, population, industry, and agriculture are renewable. On the other hand, regarding sinks, the industrial system has irreversible consequences on the physical environment, including the atmosphere, which compromise the planet's ability to withstand the increased pressure it imposed on it. Third result, the pursuit of economic growth will lead to overshot and collapse of industrial civilization if the global trends observed in terms of population growth, industrialization, food production, pollution, and resource depletion were to continue. If nothing is done to invert the trends, limits would be reached during the 21st century. Currently, this is the message from the reports regularly published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Last but not least, technological progress will not help push the limits to growth. Only a radical change in the value system, that means in the production and consumption behaviors, can help prevent civilization collapse. As a major recommendation, the authors of Limits to Growth propose a global strategy to achieve what they called global equilibrium or a non-growth state, which is a state that can allow every habitant of the planet to live well. They stress that the developed countries should radically adjust their lifestyles and should help developing countries towards achieving this global equilibrium. Celso Furtado saw three merits in Limits to Growth. First, it modeled the world economy as a closed system. Until then, the dominant approach had been to start from individual countries and to assume that non-renewable resources were unlimited in the outside world. That means the rest of the world. Second, limits to growth address an overarching issue largely ignored by economists, namely the consequences of capital accumulation on the physical environment. Third merit of limit to growth, according to Celso Furtado, it showed the ecologically unsustainable character of what he called industrial capitalism. That said, according to Furtado, limits to growth suffered two limitations from a global south perspective. First, it obscured the great dependence of core countries, the developed the Western countries, on the natural resources of the peripheral countries, the global south. Second limitation, limits growth betrayed an ignorance of the specificity of underdevelopment. Indeed, limits growth made projections based on the questionable assumption that, quote, as the rest of the world develops economically, it will follow basically the U.S. patent of consumption, end of quote. This is the assumption made by limits growth to make all these projections. Paul Furtado, this last assumption sums up what he called the myth of economic development, the belief that the poorest citizens in the global south will one day enjoy the same living standards as the average citizen in the global north. 
The myth of economic development is the belief in so-called economic catch-up. In his discussion of limits growth, Furtado reached three major conclusions. The first conclusion, the pressure on natural resources in the future will be less than projected by limits growth since the consumption pattern of the core countries concerns only a minority of the world population and can never be generalized to the whole planet. In other words, pressures on the global resources are attenuated by the functioning of the global economic system, which prevents population in the global south achieving the same consumption patterns as in the global north. Quote, the predominant evolutionary tendency is to exclude nine out of 10 people from the principal benefits of development. And if we observe the group of peripheral countries in particular, we realize that there is a tendency to exclude 19 out of 20. This growing mass of the excluded in absolute and relative terms that is concentrated in peripheral countries constitute in itself a heavy factor in the evolution of the system. End of quote. His second conclusion was that the generalization of Western way of life must lead to the collapse of civilization. Quote, Limits to growth provides a thorough demonstration that the lifestyles created by industrial capitalism will always be the privilege of a minority. The cost of this lifestyle in terms of the degradation of the physical world is so high that any attempt to generalize it would inevitably lead to the collapse of an entire civilization, putting the survival of the humanity species at risk. We have then thorough evidence that economic development the idea that the poor peoples can one day enjoy the lifestyles of the current rich peoples is simply unattainable. We know how incontrovertibly that peripheral economies will never be developed in the sense of being similar to the economies that currently make up the center of the capital system. End of quote. Third conclusion of Furtado has a more pragmatic aspect. The impossibility of economic catch-up does not imply that the citizens of the global south are condemned to suffer from poverty and inequality. It only implies that capitalism has nothing to offer as a prospect of a decent life for the vast majority of humanity, and that an alternative orientation of development should be devised that is more egalitarian and more economical in resource use. To that end, according to Furtado, priority should be given to a wide social dissemination of consumer products whose production escaped the modernist cult of plants of solutions. Celso Furtado was not alone among Global South thinkers in the rejection of the economic catch-up view. Samir Amin reached similar conclusions via a different theoretical route. The former director of the Third World Forum and prolific author observed that the secular destruction of the peasantry in the global north went hand in hand with an important growth in agricultural productivity. In 19th century Europe in particular, industrialization made it possible to apply productively a large part of the labor force released by the agriculture and the craft sectors. But that was not enough to absorb the surplus labor force. Immigration, especially to the Americas, provided the main outlet Britain, the leading economic hegemon at that time, is probably the most eloquent example of this pattern. 
as Utsa and Prabhat Patnaik wrote in their book, A Theory of Imperialism, quote, between 1821 and 1915, over 6 million persons migrated permanently out of Britain, a number larger than Britain's 1821 population. British emigration alone made up 36% of all immigration from Europe during this period. The average number of persons migrating every year from Britain over this period works out to nearly half the annual increase in population, end of quote. However, if the countries of the global south are to follow the same development trajectory as the West, this must lead to a large disposition of peasants and thus to the creation of a huge surplus labor force. However, this surplus labor force will not be absorbed by the modern sector due to the absence of industries or to the capital-intensive nature of the technologies used. In contrast to Western Europe during its 19th century industrialization phase, there is no place in the planet where the global south would export its so-called surplus labor, let's call it their army of informal sector workers. Despite the Western media frenzy about the so-called migrants, the fact is that the global north is rather close to workers from the global south, especially the low-skilled ones. Indeed, one of the main features of the current world system is that there is very little movement of labor, especially from the south to the north. At current immigration rates, if we were to relocate 10% of the poor population from the south to the north, it would take 200 years, according to economist Franco Milanovic. As the global south could not tap on new Americas somewhere on the planet, disparity in living conditions between north and south and within the south must remain the norm as currently observed under capitalism. Nowadays, as Samuel Amin argued, quote, the demands of competitiveness of peripheral industries in world markets justify the use of modern technologies that reduce the level of labor-intensive work. At the same time, there are no new Americas to open to mass migration from Asia or Africa. Under these conditions, the continuation of a model based on historical capitalism produces nothing but migration from devastated countryside to squalid urban slums, end of quote. In other words, the limited opportunities for large-scale immigration to newer Americas is another important reason why the countries of the global south cannot collectively replicate the development trajectory of the West and why, therefore, they must find a path of their own. In favor of the Furtado and Amin views on the impossibility for the global south to economically catch up with the global north, a growing literature has shown that Western development trajectory during the last two centuries had been based on an ecological exceptionalism, or better, on an ecological imperialism, resting first on the net appropriation of resources of the global south and second, on the externalization to the global south of the ecological costs of capitalist expansion. These two patterns combined render economic catch-up impossible for the global south as a whole. If economic catch-up were to happen, global south citizens would have to achieve the same levels of consumption and waste as the average citizen in the global north. Yet we know that if all the inhabitants of the earth 
had the same ecological footprint as the average resident of the European Union, 2.8 planets would be needed while we only have one. The European Union represents only 7% of the world's population, yet it uses 20% of the planet's biocapacity. In other words, the planet could not afford the universalization of the unsustainable European or American way of life. In January 2021, the journal Ecological Economics published an article co-authored by Christian Dorninger and nine of his colleagues titled Global Patterns of Ecologically Unequal Exchange, Implications for Sustainability in the 21st Century. This article has made particularly salient three empirical results of the literature on unequal ecological exchange. First result, developing countries lose both on flows of biophysical resources and on monetary flows. Quote, High-income nations accomplish a net appropriation of materials, energy, land, and labor, while simultaneously generating a monetary surplus from those net appropriations. End of quote. Second result, economic growth in developed countries depends on unequal ecological exchange. Quote, the economic growth of wealthier regions is achieved through high mass throughput and concurrent environmental burden shifting to poorer regions, end of quote. Third result, economic catch-up for the global south is impossible. Quote, because the economic growth model of industrialization requires the appropriation of resources from poorer regions, it seems illusory for all poorer nations to be able to catch up by, among other things, accessing even poorer regions from which to appropriate resources. Industrialization, as experienced by the world wealthiest country and some emerging economies like China, could not become universal. End of quote. The situation of unequal ecological exchange implies that the global south loses on two accounts net transfer of biophysical resources and net monetary transfers to the global north. The question we might ask here is how it is possible that the global south loses both on net biophysical resource flows and on net financial flows. To appreciate the singularity of this phenomenon, we could think by analogy to the case of a worker who transfers net biophysical resources and net monetary flows to her boss. For this situation to exist, the global south must structurally be in a position of financial indebtedness to the global north. This begs another question. How can the debt in hard currency be repaid to the global north? The answer is permanent austerity for the majority in the global south and the selling off and privatization of national assets. The enforcement of so-called creditors and investors' rights is ordinarily the province of the IMF and National Monetary Fund and the World Bank. As a matter of fact, their objective role is to facilitate the drain accruing to the global north through unequal exchange. Sadly, unequal exchange has been the story of post-independence Africa. Due to the nature of the economic specialization they inherited from colonialism, most countries are subject to an alternation between growth cycles stimulated by improved prices for commodities and austerity cycles marked by declining terms of trade and debt distress.
For example, the 1960s were a decade of relatively high economic growth on average for Sub-Saharan Africa. In the following decade, the average rate of growth declined due namely to deteriorating terms of trade. But the foreign debt as a ratio of GDP increased. Foreign debt tends to increase with investors' confidence in brighter growth prospects. Unfortunately, worsening terms of trade and higher borrowing costs paved the way for a debt crisis that the IMF and World Bank managed from a creditor perspective. The results were that many African countries experienced lost decades in terms of real GDP per capita growth. Yet their foreign debt GDP ratio continued to increase, a clear sign that austerity policies are not designed to help countries recover economically and be in a better financial position. Rather, they are designed to punish countries and put them at the mercy of their creditors. The foreign debt GDP ratio declined only with the partial cancellation of bilateral and multilateral debts in the first decades of the 2000s. Growth resumed, even if it was jobless. Thanks to more peaceful political settings and improved terms of trade, Sub-Saharan Africa recorded its best decadal performance prompting the so-called Africa rising narrative. Investors' confidence was back. The foreign debt stock had been gradually reconstituted. However, with the end of the support commodity boom cycle in the beginning of the 2010s, economic growth slowed down. It was sustained mostly through onerous infrastructure projects, sometimes financed with the issuance of debts in foreign currency. The COVID-19 pandemic arrival would just expose further unsustainable foreign debt trajectory of a number of African countries. The pandemic did not create the debt distress. It's just accelerated given that all the debt sustainability indicators had been deteriorating from 2008. One thing Sankara understood, and which is not clear yet to most progressive intellectuals and movements, is that cancelling the existing foreign debt stock is far from enough. All the discussions about the need to find an international and functional mechanism for sovereign debt restructuring are probably as well meant as a campaign for debt cancellation or debt jubilee. Also, they have become very technical. They often miss the elephant in the room. Sankara knew that the system of unequal ecological system is what was to be abolished first of all. So important, the repudiation or cancellation of the current foreign debt stock would not be enough. Even if it were cancelled, the foreign debt stock would be quickly reconstituted as the case of Sub-Saharan Africa shows between 2000 and now. So as long as the foreign debt cancellation does not intervene as a foundation for another development path, its benefit risks being temporary and pyrrhic. Between 2000 and 2016, for 28 countries representing 85% of Sub-Saharan Africa GDP, interest paid on the external debt amounted to 100 billion US dollars. So very significant. This was five times less than the foreign debt investment income transferred from Africa to abroad during the same period. Yet there is no campaign as King to cancel the repatriation of these huge amounts of profits, 
which ultimately contribute to the reconstitution of the foreign debt stock of the continent. In other words, there is logically no sustainable development for Africa and the global South in a world of unequal ecological exchange. Even the highly commendable sustainable development goals of the United Nations are not sustainable in practice. They still cling to the economic catch-up view and to that extent do not acknowledge the reality of unequal ecological exchange. Once it is realized that economic catch-up is an illusion for the global South, something else must be tried. The NAS development path must be experimented by necessity. This logical conclusion is the basis of the delinking strategy advocated by Sami Lamin. Far from being synonymous with autarky, a delinking strategy rather implies prioritizing the domestic needs of the peripheral countries over the demands of the global economic system. In practical terms, it means implementing policies that lead to greater local control over the reproduction of the labor force, the domestic market, natural resources, technology, and the centralization of economic surplus. Through this concept, it is meant the control over the financial system and flows and the ability to direct domestic investment. While I mean theorized the linking, Thomas Sankar was obliged by the circumstances faced by his country to experiment a form of forced delinking. Sankara invited Sami Lamin to come to Burkina Faso in order to discuss the country's economic challenges. At his arrival, Sankara said to him, quote, you have told us that we must have the courage to deconnect, delink. Before we could gather that courage, the friends have taken the lead and deconnected us, delinked us. What shall we do? End of quote. As Sami Lamin recollected some years ago, some years later, quote, I had not imagined that the question of delinking their connection would first arise in a country as poor as Burkina Faso. Retrospectively, there were some objective limitations to the agenda of economic liberation advocated by Sankara. One was the lack of a supportive regional integration framework. A landlocked country such as Burkina Faso must leverage trade and financial ties with its neighbors not to mention that political leaders in the region, except for the Ghanaian president, Jerry Rawlings, were not especially enthusiastic about the Burkina Bay revolution and his young and unconventional leader. Another limitation was a lack of monetary sovereignty by Burkina Faso and the related lack of understanding of the cardinal importance of money and finance. Burkina Faso is still a member of the France zone, the last colonial monetary zone in Africa. The strategy of domestic resource mobilization promoted by Sankara would have much more impact and popular support with the appropriate monetary and financial instruments. Given the little financial help received from outside, the Burkinabe revolution happened in the context of several self-imposed austerity that was resented by what could be considered as the middle classes at that time. Sankara himself acknowledged that it's very tough to transform deeply an underdeveloped country when the state budget is as little as 58 billion CFA francs, with 72% of it devoted to pay the debt and the salaries of 30,000 civil servants. In my opinion, one major lesson from the Burkina Bay Revolution is that a strategy of domestic resource mobilization 
requires a minimum in terms of monetary sovereignty to be successful over the medium and long run. Burkina Faso under Sankara was heavily money constrained, and this limited the scope for popular support for the Burkina revolution over a long-term basis. Yet, as modern money theory shows, money can never be an absolute constraint. Governments that issue their own fiat currency could never lack their own currency. In principle, they will always be able to finance in their own currency any projects that relies on real resources available locally or that can be developed locally. In contrast to financial resources, real resources refer to land, labor, equipment, intermediary inputs, etc. The paradigmatic revolution introduced by MMT opens up a developmental space that has been hardly explored. In contrast to the current extravagant development path that makes African countries economically vulnerable and highly dependent on foreign technology, trade, and finance, it is possible to create a sustainable prosperity that reduces external dependency in its various facets. In the spirit of the Live as African motto, this path consists in mobilizing domestic resources in an institutional framework of monetary sovereignty. By an institutional framework of monetary sovereignty, I mean an intellectual and policy framework where the following facts are acknowledged. First, a government issuing a sovereign currency can never lack money and its spending is not limited by its fiscal receipts. Second, investment is never constrained by available savings. And third, real resource constraints are the ones that matter, first of all. My view is that by uniting Sankara's approach to MMT's description of the operational realities of the monetary system, we can delineate a promising approach to economic development, able to deliver the basics of decent life to anyone while reducing African nations external dependency. To be provocative, I would say that the challenge is to MMTing Sankara, or if we prefer, Sankaring MMT. To illustrate this point, let us take a concrete example coming from the revolutionary work being done by Jebedo Francis Kerry, a Berlin-based architect born in Burkina Faso. Francis Kerry recently won the prestigious Pritzker Prize 2022, which is considered as Nobel Prize for Architecture. Francis Kerry epitomizes perfectly the Live as African approach. As a pioneer of sustainable construction, he built schools in Burkina Faso, namely in his native village, using essentially local materials. In March 22, following the announcement of his prize, he was interviewed by the French media. Here are some excerpts. To the question, what inspired you to build schools using local materials, he replied. I always resented the fact that children are sitting in classrooms where it is very hot, where there is no light, in a country where there is the sunlight during all the day. I said to myself, we must use what is abundant to create classrooms that provide comfort for teachers and students, but also classrooms that are inspirational. I wanted to bring beauty to the neediest. In doing so, the techniques came. That is how to create passive ventilation, how to create a roof that supports passive ventilation and at the same time protects the building from the weather. 
That's how I did it, by modernizing the earth. That is by adding aggregates to it. I didn't just stop there. In Burkina Faso, there is laterite. I use it by cutting it to make facades that give the feeling of modernity that inspires. I also use local wood to create facades to protect the walls from the sun and thus created a shaded and welcoming space for the users. That's my way of doing it. To the next question, why don't Africans use local materials, so-called traditional materials? His reply was, quote, the West by its way of doing, or its way of saying that what we have is primitive and has no value, we end up rejecting what we have. This leads to saying, for example, that building with the earth is synonymous with poverty. I do not want to accept this. I wanted to improve the earth and create buildings that inspire. We have to convince people. We must not let ourselves be stopped, but we must prove that what we have can be the basis for the development of our country. I did this by using earth to build my first school. To the question, why should Africans go back to these materials? She replied, quote, if you continue to use materials that don't come from home, the resources will disappear. And if you use what you have and you take advantage of it to improve local skills, you make people proud and add recognition to what we have. That's what's going to move us forward, end of quote. All of this has been done using local materials and local labor. From this rich and dense interview, I derive three major lessons. First, cultural alienation has worked to diminish African sense of self-esteem. Worse, it led us to devalue what we are and what we possess. Second, cultural alienation coupled with the imposition of development agendas coming from abroad have prevented African peoples to explore an endogenous development path that could deliver them a sustainable prosperity, self-esteem, and recognition. This lack of self-determination has until now produced unnecessary suffering and hardships. Third, the case to ground African development on domestic resources stimulates itself a process of creativity and innovation. At the same time, there is already enough creativity to start with within the continent. Indeed, the good news is that throughout the continent and its diaspora, there exist people unknown to most of us who are doing in their field of expertise what Francis Kerry has achieved in the domain of architecture. The work of Francis Kerry is a perfect illustration of the Levi's African approach. What the creative peoples like him must know is that whatever is feasible locally from a technical and material point of view can be, in principle, financed in the domestic unit of account of the sovereign issuer of the currency. Sankaring MMT or MMTing Sankara consists of connecting the strategy of mobilizing real resources with the possibilities associated with monetary sovereignty. In other words, it consists of implementing projects based on domestic real resources and finance essentially in the national currency. This development path allows creating prosperity for the majority while reducing external dependency. It could be further leveraged, provided that regional or continental integration is also designed according to the living as African approach. None of this implies that African countries do not need foreign technology or finance or international solidarity. Rather, the argument is that international cooperation and solidarity should stop being a deus ex machina. It should be tailored 
to meet the specific needs and constraints arising from African countries' strategies to mobilize their domestic resources. In that perspective, the real test for international cooperation and solidarity is to demonstrate whether it helps increase African self-reliance. For example, in place of a collaboration that creates technological dependence, a Levas African approach to international solidarity would rather promote a cooperation to develop liberation techniques. And by liberation techniques, I mean techniques and tools that allow the continent and its inhabitants to increase first their capacity to mobilize their domestic resources and lessen the need to rely on foreign resources. In conclusion, I would say that as Sankara rightly pointed out, quote, we must accept live as African. That is the only way to live free and dignified, end of quote. It is also the only way out of the current dead end. Humanly and ecologically sustainable development must be based on the mobilization of resources available locally or that could be developed locally. The good news is that everything that is technically feasible locally can in principle be financed in the domestic currency. This is a liberating message of the modern monetary perspective. As Sankar also said, could we have enough intellectual capacity to create or at the very least use technology and science wherever we find it, end of quote. To that question, what an agenda of economic liberation for Africa a la Sankar can look like nowadays, I would argue that this agenda could revolve around the following idea. The basic elements constitutive of a dignified life should be decommodified and wherever possible and desirable should tend to be free of charge. By the basic elements constitutive of a dignified life, I mean, for example, food, safe water and environment, shelter, education, local transportation, etc. The principle should be that oligopolistic market actors must not decide the fate of the peoples. This agenda should be implemented by focusing on the ecologically sustainable mobilization of domestic, regional, continental resources. To be successful, it requires renewed forms of democratic and collective leadership, Pan-African solidarity, and international solidarity. This agenda for economic liberation is not a utopian vision. There is much human, cultural, and material wealth potential in the continent to make it happen. Thank you very much for your consideration. Thank you, Ndongo. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube. And follow us on TikTok, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. Okay, well, we actually had a question that isn't in the Q&A from 
our very own Jules, and she asks, if economic, quote unquote, catch up for the global south is impossible, utilizing the same historical looting of poorer, resource-rich countries, would opening up newer technology IP from the global north countries to allow global south countries to utilize that already developed manufacturing tech along with their own rich resources to make more of a leap forward make sense? Yeah, I would say this makes perfect sense. In fact, when people are talking about reparations, monetary reparations, the goal behind that from a macroeconomic perspective is a transfer of real resources and having the possibility to access to some technologies that could increase the global south and African self-reliance that would be really welcome. So that means this could also be a form of solidarity. That means fighting in the global north to make sure that global south countries would have access to some key technologies. Absolutely. And we actually have a question here from the head of our organization, Steve Grumbine. And he asks, what are the impacts of the BRICS on Africa's ability to develop organically? The IMF debts. Well, this is an interesting question. The BRICS are a group of countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And recently, their membership increased with a number of countries like Ethiopia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Iran. And the BRICS is a grouping that tries to challenge Western hegemony globally, economically, and financially. And that's their positioning. And they have the size to challenge the West. The thing is, do they have a project beyond challenging the West? That's also an issue. Because they could make the IMF and the World Bank and other Western institutions relevant, or at least they could push them to adapt a bit in a way that we could hope they might function more progressively for the global south. So they are anti-hegemonic. But the thing is, do they have a project that could be emancipatory, liberating for the global south? There is a question mark over that because the countries they recently admitted in the BRICS is for geopolitics. You see that countries like Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, is for their oil and their gas, etc., to try to disrupt to some extent the US dollar hegemony. We could say that, well, we need this multipolar world. But having a multipolar world does not mean that peoples themselves will be liberated. So we are waiting for more to see. Absolutely. We've got a question from Alexander Leopold. Professor Silla, I'd like you to comment on the role of China's finance and technology transfer in the role of developing African economic and monetary sovereignty. By the way, I did read the writings of Radhika Desai on the matter, and I'm interested in your view. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know Radhika Desai, she's a comrade. China has been participating to create a multipolar world. And for Africa, that means that we have now more options. 
in terms of trade, in terms of finance, in terms of investment, etc. For example, if I take the case of Francophone Africa, well, our external relationship used to be dominated by France and afterwards France and European countries, the Eurozone, for example. But now China in many countries has become the first bilateral partner in terms of trade and investment. So that means that China offers us the possibility to diversify our economic relationships. And China has been very efficient in helping African countries build infrastructure. But the thing is, this has not changed African economic specialization. Overall, we could not say that, for example, China has been transferring technologies or things like that. That has not been the case. China offers us new economic opportunities, but Chinese-African relationships, to some extent, are structurally similar to African, let's say, Western relationships, because Africa is still exporting raw materials, and the main demand for African products from China is raw materials. And in some countries, you could see that there are some very thorny debt issues, for example, like in Zambia. Often the mainstream media would put the blame on China saying that, well, China is the one to blame. But in those cases, equally, these countries have contracted debt towards private creditors, bondholders, for example, in, right. in Zambia. And so this makes, for example, the process of restructuring the debts owed by African countries very, very difficult. And platforms created, the initiative created by the G20, for example, like the Common Framework for Debt Spreadment, has not worked because we have this China and Western rivalry. China will say, I'm not interested in cancelling or restructuring because this will benefit the West or the private creditors from the West. And the private creditors will, will say the same. So it has become really tricky. But the thing is, as I said, is a BRICS. The main challenge is for these countries to also try to have a much more progressive relationships with African countries and the rest of the global south. That means having really technology transfers, helping these countries industrialize, etc. But I would say the relationships between China and the global south in Africa are capitalist relationships, not yeah. socialist, for example. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. I'm glad you touched on that. The next question comes from our very own Jonathan Cadman. Firstly, that presentation was absolutely brilliant, and I hope you make it often into many audiences. I was particularly delighted by your choice to weave the narrative of Sankara in there because one of the things that struck me, and I've definitely encouraged as many people as possible, especially in the wake of your macro and cheese interview, to get context by reading your CFA Frank book and watching the documentary on Thomas Sankara, Upright Man, is available for free on YouTube. And one of the things that strikes me when we're listening to the speeches of Sankara is how far ahead of his time he was in terms of the understanding of sovereignty, of resource and monetary sovereignty that you and Fadl teach us in the MMT community. And I remember in your CFA Frank book, you mentioned in the early 70s, there was a Cameroonian economist named Joseph Poemi. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. His book is available only in French, so I couldn't read it, but I wanted to. And I am curious how far ahead of their time were they? How close were they to a modern MMT understanding of resource and currency sovereignty 
even back then. Yeah, thank you very much for your intervention. It's true that Sanka was really ahead of his time. He was truly a humanist and he was really generous with the people and he wanted to do good. At one point, people told him, this guy, Blaise Compare, he wants to take your place. He will kill you. And he said, if he has to kill me, well, I will wait for him to kill me because I will never do the same because I do not want to become a tyrant. I just want to liberate my people. That was Sankara. He had been the head of state of Burkina Faso, but somehow he was political and naive in the sense that he was a bit idealistic. But that is the character of great men, that humanists. But the thing is, Sankara had a view of how to mobilize resources, but I think he lacked the MMT perspective. I think if he had the MMT perspective, maybe he could have tried to challenge the CFA Frank. He could have talked more about this constraining currency arrangement and tried to propose something else, for example, to its neighbors that could be attractive. Because, for example, in Ghana, there was a captain at that time, Gary Rawlings, who was rather close with Santa. I mean, he was his only ally. Joseph Fuemi, I would say he was aware of how money works. And this book was really important. It's a book in French, I'd say, Money, Servitude, and Liberté, Money, Serfdom, and Freedom. And in this book, where you read it, that he got the point about what is money. But unfortunately, he died under very strange circumstances at the age of 47. And the tragic part of the story, the post-independent story of Africa, is that most of our brilliant, honest leaders, truly generous, humanistic, they have been killed or removed from power. And that was also the same thing for intellectuals. For example, the first PhD in economics in Cameroon, he belonged to a political independence party called the UPC, Union of the Populations of Cameroon. And this political party had been prohibited by the colonial administrations at that time. And they could not compete on normal elections because they had been prohibited just because they wanted independence. And they had been fought to death. Their leaders had been killed. And one of the first PhD in economics, Francophone Africa, he was killed during the fight. They cut his head off just to show you how tragic this was, how violent. And so this has been the story of Francophone Africa. We had many leaders, but very few like Thomas Sankara. We had many intellectuals, but very few like Joseph Pouini or people like Sheikh Antajo and others. That's why it is important for the current generation to try to mobilize, to change that. Otherwise, it will be the status quo. But Sankara lacked the MMT perspective. And I would say that most of the Pan-Africanists lacked the MMT perspective. For example, if you read the Ausha Declaration by Julius Nere, you will see that basically we depend on taxes and we could not tax more people. Otherwise, the people will revolt. So this is clear evidence that he didn't have the point of view of monetary sovereignty. And I think this is a discourse we should try to, to develop further for the progressive people to understand. I tend to believe that the day ordinary people 
understand what is money, we'll have the true revolution. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Our next question comes from our good friend, Karen, and she asks, to what extent have African nations been affected by global North agricultural policies and practices? Has Africa fallen victim to some of the same corporate influences that have devastated biodiversity and food sovereignty in India and many South American countries? For example, the use of genetically modified seed, the emphasis on monoculture crops, and the use of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. Yeah, exactly. In fact, this has been a kind of a colonial legacy because the monocrops were promoted during colonial times. For example, in West Africa, there is something called economy of trade. It is translated into English by trading economies. It means that the colonial powers would come somewhere, would colonize territories, and they would try to see what kind of raw materials would be interesting for the industries. And sometimes they would just, for example, in my country, Senegal, say that, well, we have now to produce peanuts because we need that, because we have oil industries that need the peanut for industrializing that. In other countries, it would be cotton, etc. So that was a pattern. But what happens after independences was that Africans tried to achieve more food sovereignty, etc. And they did some good efforts. But from the 1980s, with so-called debt crisis, international debt crisis, the IMF and the World Bank, and especially the World Bank, because the IMF is about the macro and the World Bank is about the sectoral issues, so agriculture and so on. And so they said, if you want us to help you, you have to liberalize everything, including your agricultural sector. And it started by removing the subsidies to the agricultural sector. And the agricultural sector started to collapse because there were no subsidies and there was also policy to liberalize the imports. And as you know, European agricultural products are heavily subsidized, generally it was enough to destroy a large parts of the agricultural sector in Africa. And in the mid-1990s, there was this message from the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade to the World Trade Organization. And there had been this debate because at one point, producers in Latin America, they said, well, you, the Europeans, you are giving preferences, trade preferences to other countries, and we are suffering from that. Now we have to play on the same footing, etc." And the European Union started to say to African countries that now you have to liberalize your external trade, and especially agriculture. If you do not do that, we'll raise our tariffs, and well, you suffer from that. And even the WTO, had been much more progressive than the European Union. And I'm not saying that to try to denigrate them, but at least in the framework of the WTO, they say that least developed countries should not sign the agreements wanted by the European Union, so-called the Economic Partnership Agreement. But nonetheless, the European Union tried to blackmail African countries, saying that if you do not sign that, you will have no longer aid and also we raise our tariffs. They did that to West Africa, but at least Nigeria resisted they did that to Kenya, etc. So they have been trying to disrupt their regional trade in Africa. But now what is happening also is that all these trends about you know, genetically modified organisms, land grabbing, etc. Now you have all of these things facilitated by the governments because they say that this will be beneficial because this will provide them with foreign exchange that they need 
to invest or to repay the debt. So that has been the pattern. And you have some organizations like the Bill and Melinda Foundation, which have been pushing that agenda very strongly in Africa. But the good news is that you have grassroots movements throughout the continent that are trying to resist against that. And you have grassroots movements fighting for biodiversity in some places across the continent. And that gives us some hope despite the heavy challenge. We're going to go to Christina's question and she asks, if global South countries are not able to fully maximize trade value of local resources, can the global South find a way to negotiate a more equal exchange for local resources, considering their true value or perhaps use its true export value as credit to pay down loans as global social credits of sorts? or more equal exchange for tech and materials that would make it possible to have sustainable, high-value trade items, if that's what the country wants. I think that is the normal way to go. But everything depends on the type of relationship you have. Because often what you would have is that you have so-called elected governments, but those who might win elections, generally, they are those who are favorable to the Western agenda, or at least the neoliberal agenda. And so even if these leaders democratically elected, they know that this is the interest of their country, they would not do that because they know that they would lose Western support. And that also has to be taken into consideration. That means that in most of these countries, we have structures of external dependency, etc. But there are also internal structures that have to be changed. If you don't change that, it will be difficult to address the external constraint. And just one example, in the front of Africa, there have been waves of military coups. And in some countries, what is interesting is that the new major leaders, some of them are nationalists, they are doing what the so-called legitimate democratic governments could never envisage to do. For example, in Mali, they have started to renegotiate all their mining contracts, and they have been receiving more foreign income from that negotiation process. The same thing is happening in Niger with the uranium. Uranium is a very vital raw material after the Second World War for atomic bomb, for also nuclear energy. And 100% of French military uranium comes from Niger. That's why the French do not want to leave Niger so easily. And they have tried to renegotiate better prices. So that means that this is possible, but that means that you need to have committed leadership. And generally speaking, the paradox is that so-called democratic elected, they would never do that. And so we have a political problem and it's not easy to fix because governments that come through military coups or et cetera, are not seen as legitimate. While those who are seen as legitimate, they will not deliver on sovereign demands. And that is the paradox. So I would say, yeah. That is possible, politically possible. And if all these countries organize, unite, that is possible. Because this has been a long-term Pan-Africanist view. For example, uh, Kwame Kuma, uh, Pan-Africanist and also president of Ghana at the time of independence, he was advocating a common selling policy. He said that why we in Africa should we compete between ourselves? For example, if you take the cocoa, most of the raw cocoa is produced in Africa. 
between Cameroon, Nigeria, Ghana. You have these countries producing cocoa. But these countries compete between themselves and the prices are set abroad. While if these countries united, they could have better leverage to have better prices. But simply they do not do that because this is somehow due to the leadership. They are not Pan-Africanists at all. Absolutely. Alexander, if you're out there and you want to hop back on to ask another question. Yeah, you have some great questions. Absolutely. Professor Silla, the two West African CFA franc currency unions, they are emulating the dysfunctional Eurozone austerity set up. I'm very sure of that because I'm working at ECB. So how is the situation in those countries? Is there a public movement? Is it addressed at universities? Is it under public discussion or scrutiny? Or is there a lack of understanding? Yeah, in fact, since 2016, there have been more and more public debates about the CFA friend. Because before that, the subject was taboo. You could find four or five intellectuals from the left talking about that. But except for that, no one talked about the CFA friend. And this has been a daybreak policy by the African governments and also the French government to silence people about, about the CFA friend. And as you might know also, in most universities, the teaching of economics is dominated by neoclassical economics. But economic fundamentalism is doing much more damage in Africa, especially Frankfurt, Africa. It's 100% neoclassical. There is no place for autonomous mm -hmm. people at the universities. And even the recruitment process is still colonial in the sense that it's a mechanism designed to reward academically those who will defend the status quo, the economic status quo. That's why there have been no challenge regarding the CFA front coming from the university. They would always say that, wow, this is a functioning currency system because what you would ask the monetary system to do is low inflation and generate stability, and you have it with the CFA front. And everything that is not good is not due to the CFA front. That's what they would say. But the good thing is that people have been mobilizing. And now most of the people know that this is an illegitimate currency because it's a colonial currency and it's not working for the people. The only thing is that how do we exit from the CFA frame? Because I could say that we have won the intellectual debate. We have won against uh, people at the universities, some policymakers in the central bank. We have won the debate. But the thing is, how do we escape from this? And you have two roads. One of the roads is what I have called Pan-Africanist exit. That means that African countries could say to the French government, thank you very much. Now we are going to abolish our so-called monetary cooperation. You will no longer have any role in the system. And between Africans, we will try to make the necessary reforms. But this is very difficult because every time you would have three or four end of states that will always side with France. For example, my country, Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire since the 1970s, they have resisted any attempt to reform the CFA And that will continue. Uh, Follow-up question. How do you think is the creation of local financial centers instead of 
failed monetary unions changing the status quo. I'm referring here to the writing of Elizabeth Cobbett. In fact, myself, I would say that the most rational, politically rational, economically rational, is for countries which have the committee leaders to issue their own national currency because there is no legal obstacle to that. In fact, the treaties, they say that if one country wants to leave, it has a deadline of six months, and even this deadline could be shortened. So technically speaking, nothing prevents these countries from leaving the CFA fine, but they won't do it because the leadership, they are all on good terms with France, you see. In the case of a country like Senegal, why a national currency is required is that we will start exporting oil and gas. And why a country exporting oil and gas should pack its currency to the euro? In Central African countries, most of them are exporting oil and their trade is invoiced in US dollar. Most of it is invoiced in US dollar. If they want to pack, I could have understood that, well, they will pack to the US dollar, but why pack to the euro? And when they receive their export income, at least half of it will have to be deposited at the French treasuries. Yeah. They receive deposits in US dollar and they have to convert it in euros because the deposit at the French treasury should be in euros. So that means that this is a system creating free lunch rents for the French financial sector yeah. and inflicting enormous costs on these countries. That's why when you look at their rate of economic growth over the long run, you see that most of them have either stagnated or declined economically speaking. For example, recently there have been this school in Gabon and most of the countries, they say, well, Gabon is among the richest in terms of per capita income, etc. That's true. But the thing is, Gabon had its best level of real GDP per capita in 1976. And now their real GDP per capita is 55% lower than this best level of real income. You see the damage done. And in these countries, we saw theft by the French public oil company, Elf. And Elf has been bought afterwards by Total. So that means that, well, in these countries, you clearly need a democratic revolution in the sense that people have to organize, has to step up to host these leaders and to have very committed leaders. But unfortunately, they ended the Bongo dynasty, but the current military ruler is one from these Bongo circles. So that means that it's just a way of reorganizing the neocolonial system, but it's not genuine change. And then you see monetary colonialism is much smarter than sending the Légion étrangère. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just working. Yeah, it's working. I think the most vicious forms of domination is financial domination. Yeah. Because no one could see that. And in the case of the French, every time they say, well, the French does not need Africa because the trade with Africa is very small, but because they have no understanding of the economics of imperialism. In the mm -hmm. case of French, why they do not remove themselves from the system? Because they have nothing to lose with that. And you take the case of Niger, what's happened? There had been a military coup, but this military coup was an anti-French military coup to some extent. Because you have a military coup, but French interests were not threatened. So it was good. Macron went there, said that this is a nice coup. We are happy. But that was not the case in Niger. So in Niger, they said, we are going to sanction Niger because they have removed a democratically elected government, etc. 
But the thing is, there are some sanctions that you could not do to some countries because when you have monetary sovereignty, there are limits to international sanctions. In the case of Russia, we saw that, well, the West sanctions Russia. They froze Russian assets. The Eurozone froze Russian assets, etc. But the US or the Eurozone countries could never ask the Russian Central Bank to stop financing the government. They can't stop all monetary operations in Russia. They can't because this is monetary sovereignty. But when you are in a monetary union like the CFA franc, this is possible. And that's what had been done to Niger. They said we are going to sanction, but the sanctions, some of them are neocolonial in the sense that they asked the central bank to stop all operations within the country. And the government itself, since the sanctions have been implemented, no longer has access to its accounts at the central bank, you see. And this is not the first time the French did that. They did that last year against Mali. And in 2011, they did that also against the government of Laurent Gbagbo. So that means that the CFA franc is a political weapon that could be used to punish any country that doesn't behave like France like. And France could always ally with some head of states to make those punishments. But they would always say it's not France, but it's African countries who decided that. But these are sanctions on people. Thanks for your explanations. That's actually what's happening. Absolutely great questions. I would like to close out with a question of my own, Dongo. I've been around a lot longer than everyone else here. So in 1968, after leaving high school, after leaving the lycée, I went to Paris to be a hippie, basically. And there was this huge general strike. All the unions and students, it was amazing. I haven't seen anything like it since. And one of the things that really affected me was meeting Africans in Paris who didn't hate Americans. They hated French. That was during the Vietnam War. I was used to people blaming the United States for everything. So I didn't realize there were other colonial powers doing things just as badly. But I got politicized during that period. And during the upcoming years was a period of a lot of liberation movements throughout the global South. And I'm an old Leninist, so the Soviet Union was supporting countries on the non-capitalist road to development, which I fully support. That role has been replaced by China today. And I'm a little suspicious of China. I would like to know how people feel in your circles in Senegal. Do they trust China? We had a volunteer who was reading a book that said China was responsible for all sorts of bloody atrocities in Africa, which I hadn't heard anywhere else. But could you just tell me what your take on that is? Well, in fact, how people view different powers are shaped by the experience they have with them. Most Francophone Africans would not criticize the U.S. like we criticize France because France was a former colonizer. And we see all the military interventions, all the neocolonial practices, all the humiliating discourses, etc. Because France is really special. But at the same time, 
the U.S. record in Africa has not been bright in the sense that the U.S. has always allied with the most vicious regime. For example, Mobutu Sese Seko was really a violent dictator. They helped kill Patrice Lumumba, who was a very young patriotic leader who loved his country. He was really killed in very tragic circumstances. And the Western countries colluded during this murder of Patrice Lumumba by the French, Belgium, the U.S., etc. And Ronald Reagan and George Bush, they used to say that when Mobutu came to the U.S., to Washington, they said, well, this is a friend of liberty. This is a friend of freedom that they said, African dictator, they say that. Because Congo is a rich country and Mobutu served loyally Western interests. And the U.S. also, they helped kill Gaddafi and they destroyed Libya and they created the mess in the Sahel. And they started also to militarize the Sahel. And you could see that Hillary Clinton, she had saying that, well, we came, we saw, we killed it and we go back. We went back mm -hmm. about Gaddafi. But we are still leaving that if we have all these military coups in the Sahel, it's due to the invasion and destruction of Libya. They dropped weapons there, and these weapons had been taken by the jihadist groups, and they had been destabilizing all the Sahel, Mali, Burkina Faso, and etc. And this also is among the record of the U.S. But most Africans would not know it to some extent because it's far from where they live. About China and Russia, people have no negative sentiments against China and Russia because, for example, China is not militarizing Africa. In Africa, there is just one country where all the powers are, it's Djibouti. China has a military basis, French, US, etc. All of them, they are in Djibouti. But except for that, China's approach in Africa has been about economic relationships. That means trade, investment, etc. Now you have some abuses. There have been reports, including in Senegal. When I was at the foundation, we did a report and we could see that, for example, some Chinese businesses did not respect the labor law, etc. And their workers were really evolving in very harsh conditions. We would see that. But that was not specific to China because Senegalese empires also do that. This is just the theology of capitalism, unfortunately. So for now, Africans people do not have any special negative feeling towards China. Russia is also the same because Russia has sided to some extent with progressive governments during the Cold War, not like Mobutu or like that. And they have no record of killing our progressive leaders, etc., or trying to finance rebellions, etc. So Russia could be demonized everywhere, etc. But that's not the case in Africa because Russia has not been an aggressor country. In Africa, well, it's the former colonial powers and to some extent the U.S. And there's a difference between the Soviet Union and Russia as well. Yeah, yeah, there's different. And even Cuba. Because Cuba has been very active in Africa during the Cold War. The number of the troops they sent in Africa to fight very vicious regimes, like in Angola, like in the apartheid regime. So you had this small nation fighting to liberate Africa. And you have the most powerful nations like France, the US, etc., backing the most vicious regimes. So that's why African people could not criticize these countries, because this is a long history, a long record. And it had been a record where these countries 
stay in solidarity with African policy forces, you see. And there's a very interesting example. When we had the Ebola crisis in West Africa, Cuba sent doctors to help. The mm-hmm. U.S. sent military troops. Mm-hmm. You see the difference in the approach. Well, that's the difference between socialism and capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Very <laughs> fundamental. <laughs> well, Ndongo, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And I hope you'll come back again. We learned so much from an event like this, and especially this one. And I hope you'll be on Macro and Cheese again too soon. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for the invitation. Sure. Can you tell us about your new position that you just announced with ideas? Yeah, ideas is a think tank from the global south. They are located across Asia, Latin America, and now Africa. Their executive director is located in Ghana, and I'm supporting him in the context of the African continent. We try to create a network of African heterodox economists, try also to develop progressive policy templates for policymakers and also do training for the students and civil society. That's what we try to do. Excellent. Well, good luck with that. You just began this position. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again. And thank you to everyone who came today. We appreciate all the work you do. It gives us hope that we've got some good warriors on our side fighting a good fight. So again, thanks for your time and thanks everybody for joining. And I think that's about it. Mom, Red, what do you say we sign off and get out of here? Bye, everyone. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive.